Welcome to the final episode of season two, Characters of Shakespeare's Plays. That's right, it's time for another monologue roundup. I hope you've enjoyed all the fabulous guests who have spoken thus far on this season of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. So sit back, relax, and enjoy their wonderful audio performances. here I am going to be doing it uh, must be by his death by Brutus in Julius Caesar because Brutus was my problematic fave he's a character that you know after all this time and all this thought I still don't really know how I feel about him and I think it's really special to have a character that causes so much conflicted thoughts and this speech especially really highlights all of that for me because Yes, he's going through this in such a logical manner. He's piecing out every bit of why it would be good for the the community to kill Caesar. But also he admits that none of this is based on actual evidence. So it sounds so logical and so practical, but it is still so hypothetical. And I think what's really interesting in this is that we've, we've heard him have conversations with Cassius before this. We've heard his soliloquies before this, but he's already made up his mind. So the start of this speech, before we hear the why, we hear what he has decided. And I like to think of this speech in parallel with Hamlet a lot because Hamlet is another character who we kind of get on for thinking through his decisions and not making one. But is it better that Brutus has made his decision before he tells us how he's thought through it? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that because I don't have an answer for how I really feel about what good or bad Brutus is doing. And that sort of conflict in the speech itself is really, it's special and it's interesting. And I think it gives so much food for analysis. So this is, this is Brutus. It must be by his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn him but for the general. He would be crowned. How that might change his nature, there's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder and craves wary walking. Crown him that, and then I grant we put a sting in him that at his will he may do danger with. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. And to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason— but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may, then lest he may, prevent. And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities, and therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would as his kind grow mischievous, and kill him in the shell. (laughs) 
I've chosen a speech from Richard III, from very much towards the end of the play, Act 5, Scene 3, where Richard is finally facing his conscience. He's been visited by the ghosts of those that he has murdered, as has his rival, Richmond. Now, Richmond has been blessed by these ghosts, and Richard has been cursed by them. And Richard is forced, finally, to face up to what he's done. And for me, this is a very important scene, and it's one that's too often sped through to get to the battle, or it's it's skimmed over in order to keep the pace of the production. And I've had the luxury for the last several years where I've been playing Richard III in bright theatres, solo production of Richard III with the, the audience participation, to be able to really spend some time in this moment and to give people an insight into what's going on inside Richard's head. O cow conscience, how dost thou afflict me? Cold, fearful drops stand on my trembling flesh. What do I fear? Myself? There's no one else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. Is there a murderer here? No? Yes. I am. Then fly. What? From myself? A great reason why. Lest I revenge. What? Self upon myself, alack, I love myself. Wherefore, for any good that I myself have done unto myself? Oh no, alas, I rather hate myself for hateful deeds committed by myself. I am a villain. I lie, I am not fool of thyself, speak well. Fool, do not flatter. My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Perjury? Perjury in the highest degree. Murder. Stern murder in the direst degree. All several sins, all used in each degree, thronged the bar, crying all guilty. Guilty. I shall despair. There is no creature loves me, and if I die, no soul will pity me, and wherefore should they, since I myself find in myself no pity to myself? Methought the souls of all that I had murdered came to my tent. And every one did threat tomorrow's vengeance on the head of Richard.
for my monologue, I chose Cordelia. I was a little bit torn. I thought, oh, well, you know, Puck is one of those characters. I can, I can do any of his speeches at any time of day or night. I can just pull them out of my head and they're so fun. And Lady M is such a powerful and brilliant character. But I thought Cordelia has such depth and that moment is such a special moment to me because that is the moment that I dearly, dearly wish that I could have had with my father. So I, that's why I chose that. That's why this speech is so special to me because I would have given anything in the world to have this specific moment with my dad before he left this world. Oh, my dear father. Restoration, hang thy medicine on my lips and let this kiss repair those violent harms that my two sisters have in thy reverence made. Had you not been their father, these white flakes had challenged pity on them. Was this a face to be opposed against the warring winds, to stand against the deep, dread-bolted thunder? In the most terrible and nimble stroke of quick cross lightning, to watch poor Perdu with this thin helm, Mine enemy's dog, though he had bit me, should have stood that night against my fire. And wast thou fain, poor father, to hovel thee with swine and rogues forlorn in short and musty straw? Alack, alack, tis wondered that thy life and wits at once had not concluded all. He wakes. Speak to him. This week I've been performing in Cambridge, a place I always connect to the experience of acting in Shakespeare. I was lucky enough to play Hamlet here, so it makes sense to choose one of his speeches for this end of season roundout. Rather than one of the big verse soliloquies, I've opted for this melancholy and beautiful prose speech from Act 2, Scene 2, where he's talking to his untrustworthy former school friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. He pretends he doesn't know the reason why he's recently out of sorts, but he clearly can't help but speak from the heart about his state of mind. In a long scene full of witty, fast-paced and absurd wordplay, all part of Hamlet's feigned madness, his antic disposition, this speech takes the audience's ear as an honest cry from the heart. It seems to me that Shakespeare was well acquainted, directly or indirectly, with what it feels like to suffer from depression. And the words he gives Hamlet show us that people who lived over 400 years ago really weren't so different from us, emotionally or intellectually. Hamlet speaks across the centuries to those who are disconnected, grieving, isolated and struggling, who find the world weary, stale, flat and unprofitable, and have lost all faith in humanity and in themselves. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed 
It goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why, it appeareth no other thing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. because, well, she's amazing. <laughs> and she has the most incredible journey and journeys through her plays. She's mostly known as Queen Margaret, but starts out as a princess and a prisoner who is then wooed by her captor into marrying another man, Henry VI. And then, as Queen of England, Margaret fights politically to establish her position and power and then literally to regain these, leading troops into battle as a warrior queen and defeating her enemies, <laughs> only to lose everyone and everything she fought so hard for by the end of the three Henry VI plays. However, <laughs> that is not the end for Margaret. She's stripped of everything and, and now fed by the most bitter hatred and her only weapons now are words. But this is Shakespeare, <laughs> and Margaret becomes a curse-caster extraordinaire. Do check out Richard III for that. So Margaret is in four plays, more than any other character in Shakespeare. I like to think he loved Margaret too. <laughs> he certainly gave her great dialogue and a number of impressive speeches. The one I have chosen comes from Henry VI, Part Three, Act One, Scene Four. Oh, I love Margaret's focused passion for what she wants. She just goes for it. And as I mentioned, her journeys. This speech just shows some of all of that <laughs> to the extreme. <laughs> I think because I strive for calm and balance in my own life, I rather relish extreme characters when it comes to acting. Now, to set the scene, the Duke of York has made Margaret's husband, Henry, into a puppet king. York not only has the real power as the new Lord Protector, but he has also been declared Henry's heir, 
completely cutting out Henry and Margaret's son and their line. This has driven Margaret to the battlefield at the head of her army, where we see her. She's gained victory and now has captured her enemy, that usurping Duke of York. I invite you to imagine that what she first offers to give to York is also what she uses to make her second gift. Come, make him stand upon this molehill here that wrought at mountains with outstretched arms, yet parted but the shadow with his hand. What? Was it you that would be England's king? Wast you that reveled in our parliament and made a preachment of your high descent? <laughs> Where is your mess of sons to back you now? The wanton Edward and the lusty George. And where is that valiant crookback prodigy, Dicky, your boy that with his grumbling voice was wont to cheer his dad in mutinies or with the rest. Where is your darling, Rutland? Look, York. I stained this napkin in the blood that valiant Clifford with his rapier's point made issue from the bosom of the boy. And if thine eyes can water for his death, I give thee this to dry thy cheeks withal. Alas, poor York, but that I hate thee deadly, I should lament thy miserable state. I prithee, grieve to make me merry, York. What? Hath thy fiery heart so parched thine entrails that not a tear can fall for Rutland's death? Why art thou patient, man? Thou shouldst be mad, and I, to make thee mad, do mock thee thus, stamp, rave, and fret, that I may sing and dance. Thou wouldst be feed, I see, to make me sport. York cannot speak, unless he wear a crown. A uh, crown for York. And lords, bow low to him. <laughs> Hold you his hands, whilst I do set it on. I marry, sir, now looks he like a king. Aye, this is he that took King Henry's chair, and this is he was his adopted heir. But how is it that great Plantagenet is crowned so soon and broke his solemn oath? As I bethink me, you should not be king till our King Henry had shook hands with death. And will you pale your head in Henry's glory? 
and rob his temples of the diadem now in his life against your holy oath. Oh, tis a fault too, too unpardonable. Off with the crown and with the crown his head. And whilst we breathe, take time to do him dead. Hi, Rob Miles here. I'm going to give you a reading of Leontes from The Winter's Tale, the passage that begins too hot, too hot, uh, early in the second scene, in Act 1, Scene 2. I'm doing this one because it's very hard. <laughs> it's a late play, and Leontes's mind has fractured, and he is arguing against himself and against the suspicion that he has that his wife is having an affair. This idea bursts into his brain uninvited, it seems, and he tries to reject it with all that he can, but in trying to convince himself that it's not true, he ends up convincing himself that it must therefore be true. Um, and it's a kind of logic trap that doesn't necessarily make sense from the outside, but needs to make sense to him in order for the play to commence. This is the piece that, in the Arden, is described as having the most impenetrable piece of text that Shakespeare wrote. <laughs> because the meaning of the different beats is hard for, I guess, non-actors, really, to pass. But I found by essentially creating two columns and breaking up each thought fragment into yes, she is having an affair, or no, she isn't, which is something that I frequently do with speeches like this. You know, you can think of Macbeth and should I murder the king? Yes, I should, or no, I shouldn't. I find that by doing that, it was much easier to understand the flow of the thoughts and see how through the double entendre of nothing, which is used simultaneously to mean what it means to us, literally nothing, and and women's private parts that because this idea fellowed nothing that essentially becomes a pun on the affair that he believes or that he wants to believe isn't happening and because it puns in that way it kind of convinces him that therefore it must be happening and from there he's lost really but I like to think of Shakespeare's speeches to use Annabelle's frame of reference a little bit like gymnastics or figure skating, where different techniques are appointed a level of difficulty and you get points just for attempting them, <laughs> despite maybe not nailing them. And I feel like this speech is among those in Shakespeare with the highest ingrained difficulty level, and that's why I find great satisfaction in the challenge of trying to bring it to life in such a way that an audience might be able to follow this ebb and flow of yes and no, of him believing that she is having an affair and not wanting to believe that she's having an affair, trying to talk himself out of it and then talking himself into it. Um, and that whole journey takes place over these lines. So, as always, 
you, the audience, will decide how well I did or otherwise. <laughs> um, but I hope you enjoy. Too hot, too hot to mingle friendship far is mingling bloods. I have tremacordis on me. My heart dances, but not for joy, not joy. This entertainment may a free face put on, derive a liberty from heartiness, from bounty, fertile bosom, and well become the agent it may, I grant. But to be paddling palms and pinching fingers, as now they are, and making practised smiles, as in a looking-glass, and then to sigh as with a mortar the deer. This is entertainment my bosom likes not, nor my brows. Mamilius, art thou my boy? Effects. Why, that's my boorcock. Come, as smutch thy nose. They say it is a copy out of mine. Come, Captain, we must be neat. Not neat, but cleanly, Captain. <laughs> Yet the steer, the heifer, and the calf are all called neat. Still virginaling upon his palm. How now, my calf? Art thou my calf? Thou wants the rough pash and the shoots that I have to be full like me. Yet they say we are almost as alike as eggs. Women say so. That will say anything. But were they false as o'er-dyed blacks, as winds, as waters, false as dice are to be wished by one that fixes no bone twixt his and mine? Yet were it true to say this boy were like me. Come, Sir Page, look on me with your welkin eye. Sweet villain, most dearest, my collop. Can I damn? Baby. Affection. Thy intention stabs the centre. Thou dost make possible things not so held, communicates with dreams, with what's unreal thou coactive art, and fellowst nothing. Then tis very credent thou mayst conjoin with something. And thou dost. And that beyond commission. And I find it. That to the infection of my brains. And hardening of my brows. And now, my turn! I have thoroughly enjoyed all of the monologues so far, haven't you? It was difficult to choose which one to do after all of this, but I think I've made a good choice. Of all the characters in Shakespeare's plays, 
It's really hard to choose just one that encapsulates all of who you are, or that you can say is your character. So I thoroughly commend all of my guests who have had the patience and sheer ability to answer my impossible questions. I am very sorry, but the answers were so interesting, weren't they? The character I'm going with today is Juliet, and I'm going to leave it to you to guess whether this character is my favourite, the one I identify with the most, or my problematic fave. So Juliet is just shy of 14 in Shakespeare's play, and I have a really deep connection to her character and experiences. In fact, it was her and her play that got me as into Shakespeare as I am today. In 2020, Ben Crystal was kind enough to invite me to introduce the show must go online's Romeo and Juliet, you'll have heard about that in Rob's episode, and that show catalyzed so much in my Shakespeare journey. It was through Juliet and Romeo as well that I realized how present teenagers were in the Bard's canon, and that I had a place in this world as a Shakespeare-loving teen as much as any classically trained actor or academic with a master's or PhD. I also worked with Ben on this monologue in particular, so I hope you enjoy it. For context, this is from Act 4, Scene 3 of Romeo and Juliet. Lord Capulet has moved up Juliet's marriage to Paris, a marriage that could not take place legitimately, as she's already married to Romeo, and Juliet has obtained a potion from Friar Lawrence that will put her into a death-like sleep for 42 hours. Their plan is such. When Juliet's family find her dead, they will move her to the Capulet Vault, from whence Romeo will rescue her and carry her away to Mantua. There is something fairy tale like in this proposed escapade, in that it requires not only the bravery of Romeo as her knight in shining armour, but of Juliet herself. The friar tells her to be strong and prosperous and all will be well. Here though, Juliet questions this. Her anxieties cause her to spiral further and further into her fears of death and the horror of the tomb but the name of her love recalls her to her senses. Here we see a young girl relying on her love, which is stronger than hate and will eventually repair the rift between the Montagues and Capulets, use it to strengthen her faith in an adult's plan, something which will go disastrously wrong. I think it's clear why someone with an interest in Shakespearean teens would love this so much. And now, enjoy. Farewell. God knows when we shall meet again. I have a faint cold fear thrills through my veins that almost freezes up the heat of life. I'll call them back again to comfort me. Nurse! What should she do here? My dismal scene I needs must act alone. Come, Farewell. What if this mixture do not work at all? Shall I be married, then, tomorrow morning? No, no. This shall forbid it. Neither there. What if it be a poison which the friar subtly hath ministered to have me dead, lest in this marriage he should be dishonoured because he married me before to Romeo? I fear it is, and yet methinks it should not, for he hath still been tried a holy man. How if... When I am laid into the tomb, I wake before the time that Romeo come to redeem me. There's a fearful point. Shall I not then be stifled in the vault to whose foul mouth no healthsome air breathes in, and there die strangled ere my Romeo comes? Or if I live, 
Is it not very like the horrible conceit of death and night, together with the terror of the place, as in a vault, an ancient receptacle where for this many hundred years the bones of all my buried ancestors are packed? My bloody Tybalt, yet but green in earth, lies festering in his shroud, whereas they say at some hours in the night spirits resort. Alack, alack, is it not like that I, so early waking, what with loathsome smells and shrieks like mandrakes torn out of the earth that living mortals hearing them run mad how if i wake shall i not be distraught environed with all these hideous fears and madly play with my forefather's joints and pluck the mangled tybalt from his shroud and in this rage with some great kinsman's bone as with a club dash out my desperate brains <sighs> Methinks I see my cousin's ghost seeking out Romeo that did spit his body upon a rapier's point. Stay, Tybalt, stay! Romeo! 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 Here's drink. I drink to thee. And that concludes the monologue roundup. Thank you so much to Stephanie Crignola, Emily Carding, Alice Bloomer, Dominic Brewer, Danielle Farrow, and Rob Miles for your fantastic monologues. It's clear to see why you chose such incredible characters, and it's an honor to hear the very words that show us why you love them. I also want to thank William Hazlitt for the name of this season and for several of the ideas that have been brought up and discussed and agreed or disagreed with within the last six episodes. And goodness me, am I excited for what's coming next. After a two week break, A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare will be back with season three, which will be all about genre. Comedies, tragedies, histories, romances, problem plays, you name it, we'll talk about it. This promises to be a very exciting season, listeners. So till then, do catch up with the last two seasons of the podcast, and check us out on Instagram at literally a teenager's take on Shakespeare and Twitter at Teen Take Shacks. That's all for this episode. Bye for now.